Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good to have you here. Welcome, and um, be glad you're uh, glad you're with us for worship today. And uh, thank you again for um, uh, for being flexible in our in our situation of just walking in. I know everybody misses the breakfast casseroles and all that good stuff we used to have, you know. But um, but hey, uh, Pat and uh, good good to see you guys. Uh, Y'all, uh, Amy, just get them keep them focused on. The building. We have about 13 more Sundays in this room, and that's something. And then we're going to be at our new church building. So remember, today is Sunday. You can always go scour around, right? That's our that's our look around day. There's not any workers out there, and um, and so we're uh, we're just excited about that. But I know you guys are excited to be able to come in here and get a sense of normal uh, normalcy by walking in in a world that just seems discombobulated. And here we are walking into a place of just being able to worship. Now, we're worshiping while seated because we have the, you know, while we, we have two claims of fame, we probably have the lowest ceiling in Hillsborough County in a business. So we're just going to stay seated. We will also have the knowledge of having the largest porch in Hillsborough County at our new building. So anyway, we, so we have a couple of uh, milestones here at Creekside. But, um, hey, we're also doing something neat, and this is we're finally, we finally purchased our camera equipment and a proper lens to where you can see very clearly. And we've been streaming Facebook live on Facebook. So if, uh, if you're watching on Facebook, we're glad you're watching. Uh, we're adjusting things like the volume and those kind of things. So we're learning. And, uh, and, and um, also, I can't wait to encourage you to, when you worship, just while we're worshiping together corporately, uh, really focus on these, these songs have just been amazing. The first service, they really kind of hit me. And, uh, and Shale's message, and I'm, Shale, I'm not trying to just pick on you here by saying this, it is really one of the most amazingly um, convicting messages. It's about idols in our life. And th- this message, the, uh, I just thank you for the last three weeks of bringing the word like you've done. It has just brought it fresh, the scriptures. He's going to delve into scripture and some, you're probably like me, I sit there and scratch my head, and how did he get that out of that? I don't know who he listens to on the internet to get these things, but, but anyway, no, phenomenal, yeah. So, uh, hey, I'm going to go ahead and, and pray for us. Continue, by the way, to let everybody know we have a Wednesday night service at my home, open outdoor, low-risk service. Everybody brings their chair, and they can sit spaced around and far enough from people. This is for people who are not venturing out at all, so... Very appreciative group of people going out there, that's for sure. Hey, let me go ahead and pray, and we'll, we'll kick off, okay? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the ability to worship you. Lord, we praise you this morning for the fact that in the midst of a world that seems to be upside down in so many ways, Father, you're there. And Father, we thank you for um, the beauty of life that you've given us, the beauty of love in which you've pursued us. And Father, the beauty of the hope and promise that we have in you, that you have orchestrated all things for your glory. And Lord, we rest assured in that. And so, Lord, as we, from our seats, are able to worship you this morning, know that our hearts um, are being given over to you. Let the word sink into our souls. Let today's message not just stir us, but change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We answer the call that God has placed on our hearts, so let's join together this morning in worship and lift it up to him. 
fellowship together here in this place, something that we so often take for granted, Father, that we can meet here freely, free of persecution, fear, with the chance to lay it all at your feet, Father, all of our cares, all of our fears, anything in our lives that is obstructing the direct contact with you, Father. Thank you for that. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to look to you, to turn our eyes to you, Father, this morning. That we could be nurtured. We can find peace and understanding in you. We thank you for that and all that you all that you do for us, Father. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.
So the last few weeks we have been in Acts chapter 19, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and, and turn there. And we've been talking about a few different themes, but if I had to boil it down to one, it would be affections of the heart. And I think it's such an important idea, affections of the heart, because as humans, our hearts are always drawn to something. Right? Like we were created that way. We were created to worship. And one author says it like this. He says, we are all worshipers, continually giving ourselves away to, identifying ourselves in light of, and living for the glory of someone or something. Like that's just human nature. And, you know, historically, I always kind of thought as people who worshiped, you know, you're worshiping God and maybe somebody worships a, you know, they're Hindu and they worship their version of God or their, you know, and I I always think of it as worshiping a higher being. But the reality is, as this statement says, we're all created to worship and there's a lot of different things we can worship, right? So the question is not, are we worshipers? Because everybody in this room is. The question is, who are we worshiping? How are we worshiping? Or what are we worshiping? I mean, that, that's really the question. So as we've been unpacking this the last three weeks, we started with this, this idea of a foundation, like a building a secure, firm foundation. And we asked whether or not your life was being built on Jesus. Is he your foundation? And then last week, we switched gears a little bit, and we started talking about repentance, and the role, excuse me, repentance plays in the life of a believer. And, and we weren't talking about repentance that takes place at the time of salvation. You know, in the beginning, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, we were talking about ongoing repentance, right? Because the reality is, if you have sin in your life, and the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that sin, and you're ignoring him, then eventually that conviction is going to go away. And I feel like we've probably all been there with certain things in our lives. But the problem is, when that conviction goes away, I would, I would argue that your fellowship goes away as well. And so, you know, and I, I don't know if you remember, but last year we were, kind of go, we were going through First and Second Samuel. We talked through all of First and Second Samuel. And there's this passage where David prays this prayer, this prayer of repentance right after his affair with Bathsheba. And we see this prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. And here's what he says. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And that to me, you know, minus maybe some Old Testament references, it's just a, it's a pretty good picture of repentance in the life of a believer. And, and that's what we saw last week. God was moving in the city of Ephesus, and these people were coming, they were repenting, and they were throwing their idols into the fire. Do you remember that? Here's the verse we read last week, um, verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. 
And the picture that we're, we're seeing here is the Ephesians were like, these idols that I've been holding on to, they're gone. Like these things I've been holding on to instead of God, these things I go to instead of God for joy and peace and satisfaction and comfort, like I'm getting rid of them. I'm coming forward. I'm throwing them into the fire. Like the safety net is gone. The parachute is gone. It's all Jesus here on out. Like I trust him. I trust him in the good times. I trust him in the bad times. It's almost like my secret stash of things I go to when times get really tough. Like I'm getting rid of that. But interestingly, today, I think we see the other side of the coin. We see what happens when idols are thrown into the fire. Because the most beloved idol of all of Ephesus is being challenged and the people get violent. They, they, they don't like that. And that's often, that's often what happens. And I realize in this day and age, and we mentioned this last week, but I think it's worth repeating, this idea of worshiping idols at least to me, it seems a little ridiculous, right? You get a little idol, you put it on your mantle, and you go over and you bow down to this idol. Like it, to me, it just, seems, it just it seems a little odd, but you have to realize even back then, these idols were just representations of something else. They were a representation of something deeper because there was a God for power and there was a God for money and there was a God for fertility and there was a God for comfort and there was a God for family, and, you know, if you, you begin to realize, like us today, these ancient cultures were really just worshiping money and power and comfort and family. The statue was just their means to try to get it. So, so while we might be, quote unquote, advanced to the point where we don't bow down to idols, at least in the American culture as much, it still doesn't mean we're not guilty, and it still doesn't mean there's not something we can learn from this passage, because maybe the idols aren't there, but we, I think we still pursue, our tendency is still to pursue these exact same things. So really, I think Acts 19 is just the story of what the gospel does when it comes into a city. And I think even beyond that, it's the picture of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and the Holy Spirit comes into my life. When we place our faith in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes in, like the, the things we've always gone to in the past for joy and peace and satisfaction, like when I got out of a relationship, I would run here. When I lost a job, I would go here. When this happened, I would go here. I mean, we all, we all had these crutches we would historically go to when times got tough, but now we're believers, and the Holy Spirit's in our life, and the Holy Spirit's like, come to me. I am your comforter. When times get tough, don't go there, go here. When times get tough and you used to go here, get on your knees and pray. Like, seek me because I will bring you comfort. But what happens is when, that, when, that Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, I think the same sort of battle ensues because the fleshly side of me is still fighting. The fleshly side of me still wants to go over here when things don't work out right. The fleshly side of me still wants to run to X or Y or Z when life doesn't go the way that I think it should go. And so that, that's kind of the picture of what we're going to see today. And so with that as a little background, let's jump in. Acts 19, verse 23, and you'll see the verses up here. So about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, the way just being the followers of Christ. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. 
So I don't know if you've ever been to a tourist attraction like the Eiffel Tower or the Empire State Building where you can purchase these little replicas. I think we have an Empire State Building on our Christmas tree from one Christmas we were in New York. I mean, you just kind of get these little replica statues that you take from places. And apparently this was a booming business even 2,000 years ago. Because here in ancient Ephesus, this guy named Demetrius owns a little shop, and that's what he does. He makes little silver statues of the temple of Artemis. And up until this point, he has had absolutely no trouble selling these statues. Like he could have sold them in his sleep. He, 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 couldn't even, he wasn't even a good salesman. It didn't matter because everybody wanted one of these little things because the temple of Artis, Artemis was world-renowned. It was the largest structure in existence in the world at this time. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Okay? But as you can imagine, as people in Ephesus begin turning to the Lord, his sales aren't as good as they used to be. Like, obviously, he's not selling as many as these statues. A lot of them just got thrown in the fire. So he's not selling as many. And it didn't just affect him. There's a lot of people that have business around this temple of Artemis. Right? A lot of people making money. There would have been hotels. There would have been restaurants. There would have been little stands. There would have been food. There would have been water. I mean, you can imagine if you've ever been to a kind of a tourist destination, all the business that surrounds that. So that's what's happening. He's losing money. They're losing money. And he wants to get everybody riled up. So verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see in here, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying, gods made with hands are not gods. That, that is Paul's mantra everywhere he goes. Gods made with hands are not gods. And it's a great statement. Like he's an idol carved by someone is not a god. If you made it, then it didn't make you. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's basically what Paul is saying. If you're carving, if you actually made the god, then the god didn't make you. And while I think it seems really, really obvious, at least to me, I, I really think there's a modern day carryover. Because even though we may not be creating our own idols, I think our tendency is to create our own God. At, at least our own version of God. One that's a little more palatable. Are you with me? Am I the only one that tries to think that way? Like a version of God that's a little more palatable. One that doesn't really care about sin. One that doesn't ask us to pick up our cross and carry it daily. Like a God that just lets us do all the things that we've always wanted to do. Like, God, I love you. I want a relationship with you. But I really still want to hold on to this part of my old life. Because it makes me happy. And I know you want me to be happy, God. Because, you know, so I'm just going to keep doing this and we're just going to get along. Do, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I'm, I'm just as guilty of thinking this way and trying to do this. But that, that is the same thing. That is a version of God that we are creating that's not God. Like we know who God is from the scriptures. It's very clear. And so often I want to create a version of God that's a little different. All right, I believe everything in here except that verse right there. I don't really like that one. So God, I'm just going to pretend that verse doesn't exist, and we're going to keep doing things together. 
We're just going to keep hanging out. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, that, that I think is the modern day version. And that's the entire premise of Paul's argument. You're worshiping something in the place of the real God that you created. And that's, that's what he's telling the Ephesians. But Demetrius and his crew, they don't really see it that way. In their mind, Artemis is real. You can't tell them otherwise. And they aren't going down without a fight. All right, verse 27. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia in the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So everybody's whipped up into a frenzy. Demetrius is successfully does this, and he kind of narrows everybody and brings them down into the amphitheater, which also was the largest amphitheater in the world at that time. You can actually see it. It does still exist today. They've kind of they've pulled aside ruins, and this is what the amphitheater actually looks like. It holds about 25,000 people. So that would probably be the number of people that are in there when this is going down. For reference, the USF Sundome, although I think it's called something else now, holds about 10,000. Emily Arena, where the Lightning play, holds about 20,000, a little over. So that, that's what's happening. That's the amount of people that are in here. And it would have been quite the scene. They're all on their feet. They're yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this is just going on. And after a while, Paul's like, all right, I got to get in there. Like Paul's in town. He's like, I got to get in there. I got to speak to these people. But his friends are like, there's not a chance. Verse 30. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried one thing and another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Straight up mob mentality. Most of them didn't even know why they were there. Why? Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours, right? I mean, that, I, what, what a scene. Two hours of yelling that. It almost sounds like a, a, a football game, right? Two hours of yelling. Um, he goes, uh, let's see, verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, so the town clerk comes in, he says, men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So let's stop right there. Most historians think that the image or the statue of Artemis that was inside the temple was actually carved from a meteorite. And that's why they said this. Whether that's true or not, I do not know, but that's why, that's why this reference is in there, of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. 
for we, are, we, are, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. It's the end of the chapter. Like that, the crowd disperses, Paul and his you know, compadres live to see another day. And it's, you know, as I'm reading that, and I get down to the end, you know, if, you're, if it's the first time you've read it, you're like turning the page, waiting to see, all right, what, what actually happens here? Like, what, why is this story even here? Why is this told? Like, it almost seems pointless. People got angry. Somebody comes in, talks them off a cliff. Everybody goes home. End of story. So why is it here? Nothing in Scripture is there by accident. So why did Luke include it? And I think if we want to answer that, first you have to kind of step back and you have to think about this little section at the end in the context of everything that happens in Acts chapter 19. So at the beginning, you have Paul coming into town. He's there for three years, and he's teaching the word daily in, the, in the, um, a room rented from this, this guy named Tyrannus for two years. So Paul comes in, and one of the first things he does is for two years, he preaches the word every day. And because the word is taught, we see people believe. The Holy Spirit is moving in the lives of the people. Demons are being cast out. We saw that a few verses ago. Believers are coming. They're throwing their idols. They're repenting. They're throwing their idols into the fire. And now at the end, a group of people are rioting, visibly upset by the work of God. And if you step back and you think about it, this story, I think, is really here to remind us that any time idols are extinguished from our lives or the lives of those around us, panic will follow. It, it, it can't, sometimes it's not a pretty sight. And the only thing I can equate, equate it to is like a, like a drug addict looking for a fix. Because in the past, this addict has always gone to drugs, maybe to alcohol for peace, satisfaction, kind of to forget what's going on. But now there's this new affection in their life battling for their love and devotion, right? The Holy Spirit is now in their life, and there's a little battle going on, like I mentioned in the beginning. And, and this, this is how idols operate. They creep into your life, and they whisper in your ear the lie that has been told for thousands of years, which is God isn't who he says he is. He can't satisfy you like I can. Go to the bottle, go to the drug stash, go to your secret stash, go to the fridge, go buy a bunch of clothes, go on vacation. Like, whatever it is you do to find peace, go do it. Because you won't find it in Jesus. That's the lie. Run to the things you always have stashed for emergencies because when it, it looks like God's not going to show up, you can trust your idols. That, that, that's how Satan has operated since the Garden of Eden. And I think, unfortunately, so often we don't see it like that. We don't recognize the whispers for what they are. We don't recognize the lies as coming from the enemy. So, so here's what I want to do with the time we have left. And I think this is really important, especially in the context of Acts chapter 19. I want to spend a few minutes kind of walking through some of the more common idols that may be in our lives in hopes that you see them, you get rid of them, and you can refocus on Jesus. 
Okay, there's this passage, and I want to start with this. There's this passage in Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the Hall of Faith. In the whole chapter, I would encourage you to read it. The writer is listing all of these people over time that have demonstrated great faith. And it starts all the way back with Cain and Abel, then it goes down to Abraham, then it goes to Moses and David and Jephthah and Samson. And I mean, he's listing all of these people throughout the whole chapter that have shown great faith. But then immediately following that, Hebrews chapter 12, there's this little section that I think perfectly sums up this idea we're talking about. And here's what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses talking about all the people in chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I love that phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because, but that's, it's essentially the essence of what it means to worship him. Fixing our eyes on him. No matter what else is going on, fixing our eyes on him. And the reality is God created us to love him and to worship him above all things. And the Bible says we were created in the image of God. So part of biblical worship is to image God to all creation, to reflect his glory, to reflect his greatness to the world around us. So when people see us and they see followers of Christ, they get a small glimpse of what God is actually like. So then the opposite of biblical worship is idolatry. And personally, I think one of the clearest examples of that opposite is found in Romans chapter 1. It says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator God, who is forever praised. Amen. Now, now think about that. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the, cre- served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So while worship is living to the glory of God... Idolatry is living to the glory of creation. Are you with me so far? Right? Something created, like for in the case of the Ephesians, their little, their little god statue of Artemis, something created is elevated to take the place of God. It's glorified. It becomes the source of our identity. It becomes the source of our joy. It's what our life revolves around. It's the affections of our worship. It's, I mean, it's, it's everything that's important to us is now something that is created. And Tim Keller, who's done a ton of research and is a million times smarter than me in this area, this is what he says. He says, most of the time, we're not worshiping things that are bad. We worship things that are good. We take good things, we make them into God things, and in doing so, they become bad things. It's, it's kind of hard. You probably got to read it like six times or actually wrap your mind around it. But what, he, what he's saying is, as followers of Christ, we can see the bad things and we know not to worship them. Like we know if I start walking down this path and worship, that's, that's not going to lead the right direction. That's not going to lead the right direction. Like I can see that. I get that. 
He said, for a lot of us, our issue it was that we take gifts from God, good things, but we elevate them to the place of God in our lives, and that's what our lives revolve around, instead of actually revolving around God. So if you go back to Hebrews 12, instead of fixing our eyes on Jesus, we are now fixing our eyes on something else. And that is the premise behind idolatry. I mean, that, that's the whole deal. If you wanted to define idolatry, that's kind of what it is. So here, I want to I kind of dive into this good thing idea. So take a young, a young man who wants to get married. It's a God-given desire. Would you agree? But what if this young man elevates marriage and a wife to God-like status? It's the most important thing. Then for him, singleness is hell, right? Marriage is heaven, and his savior is a woman. Again, we're just talking this one little, this one little example. But then if that mindset continues into marriage, let's say he gets married, that mindset continues, then God takes a back seat because everything in his life has to revolve around this person that he has the most important thing in his life. Now, I'm married, right? Is a good marriage and a happy wife a bad thing? No. You can say no. More of you can say no. Okay. A, a good wife, a happy wife is a really good thing, right? But a wife is not a savior. God is. Right? So how about the woman who wants to be a mother? Obviously a very, very good thing. This is an amazing thing. But let's say that this woman takes this God-given desire, elevates it above everything else in her life. This is the most important thing in her life. And now all of a sudden for her, being motherless is like her hell. And a baby would be like her savior. And heaven is being a mother and having a family. And I realize how it sounds. We're going to keep diving into this. Obviously, a child is a gift from the Lord, but if we're not careful, these good gifts can become obsessions that interfere with our relationship with God. Because now our world revolves around said thing instead of our world revolving around God. And I know it sounds legalistic. I know it sounds harsh. I know it sounds sacrilegious. But think of it in the context of what Jesus says in Luke 14. Here's what he says. Imagine him saying this, right? Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, all right? It's this picture of you are walking along with Jesus in ancient times, and he stops, and everybody stops frozen to hear what Jesus is going to say. And he turns around and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'd be like, what? Can, can you repeat that? Because that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Right? And I've wrestled with this all week, and I'm honestly, especially this verse, not even sure I fully understand it, other than to say that our love for Jesus is the most important thing in our lives. 
Jesus isn't saying to hate your family. We know that from the context of the rest of Scripture. We know that from what the love that Jesus has for people. Like, he isn't saying that. That would conflict with what we know about him. But what he is saying is if you're not careful, these things will function as your Savior. The theological term would be functional saviors. If you're not careful, they will bring you comfort and you will go to them for joy and for peace instead of going to God. Does that make sense? So how about this one? How about wealth? I'm going to give you a layup. How about wealth? Do you think wealth can be an idol? The answer is yes. All right. <laughs> Can wealth be a functional savior, something we look to for ultimate security? I mean, it, it can. Like, God, I'm going to follow you. This kind of goes back to the creating your own version. God, I'm going to follow you as long as I can keep this in my account. I'm going to follow you as long as I never lose my job. If I lose my job, I'm going to have to go back to my old idol. Like, that's it, 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 just the way it is. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, there's this rich young ruler who wants to know what he has to do to follow Jesus. He's like, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. What must I do? Jesus says, keep the commandments. To which the young man says, I've done all that. I've kept all the commandments. So Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What if Jesus looked at you? I'm going to look at Pat here because he's already shaking his head. <laughs> what if Jesus looked at you? or you, Ian, or whoever, and said, I want you to sell everything you have. I want you to take the money, including your 401k, right? Because that's kind of the, oh, you, you remember that? You remember I had that? Yep, yep, that too. Bring, bring that in. I want you to take it down, because he said give it to the poor. The Salvation Army deals a lot with the poor. I want you to take it down. I want you just to give it all to the Salvation Army, and I want you to move overseas and serve me. What would you say? You can, you can keep it to yourself. All right. Now, I, I realize that Jesus, that, that command isn't necessarily for everyone, but it can be for everyone. This guy obviously struggled. This was an idol for him. We could probably agree that in America, wealth could also be a lot of our idols. So Jesus looks at him and knows what's in his head, knows what's in his heart, and says, here's what I need you to get rid of. And then I need you to come and follow me. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. How about your career? What if your big break you always thought you were going to get never came? Your, your lofty ambitions for your career never materialized. Would life still be okay? Could you live with a mediocre job in your eyes, but knowing that Christ is at the center of it? Would that be okay? How about, how about here's one for you. How about sports? Keep in mind this is coming from someone who loves sports. This is not a pastor with an ulterior motive trying to say something. I, I really love sports. But you ever get the feeling that our stadiums are 
kind of like Ephesus maybe, are just temples filled with thousands of people worshiping. Again, I love sports. I'm often one of those people in the stadium. I remember back in the day, if the Bucks lost, you, you, you just didn't want to talk to me. If the Bucks lost, you probably couldn't talk to me. And I'm not even lying. Like, I wouldn't watch Sports Center. I wouldn't listen to talk radio. Like, I was done for a week. And, and the sad part is, if I think about, and I was walking with Jesus, but the sad part is, if I think about that exact same time in my life, the sin I was dealing with really wasn't that big of a deal in my mind. I'm not saying I wasn't aware of it, but the bucks really bothered me a lot more than my sin did. And, and that's what I'm saying. If we're not careful, some of these things can get put in the wrong place. I remember when the Bucks and Raiders were in the Super Bowl and Oakland lost... The city of Oakland rioted for three days. I mean, you can Google Oakland 2003 Super Bowl, and you will see pictures of cars tipped over on fire, businesses burned down because they lost a football game. I mean, if I would, I would, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here and say maybe that was an idol for some folks, okay? <laughs> But, but here's the thing, and to be fair, there are legitimate reasons to protest. Losing a football game is not one of them, right? And those things can sometimes get, get out of whack, all right? How about your political party? <laughs> For the record, I am a diehard conservative. But the Republican Party does not dictate what I stand for. It does not dictate what I believe. I don't look at what they are currently, you know, espousing as right and say, okay, that's also what I believe. Like, I have the Bible for that. That, when Courtney and I go to vote, we actually sit down and we go down this list and we discuss the various issues that politically are being discussed. And it's it's not always friendly, right? Because we, you know, we, we go at it and we talk about things and, you know, it's friendly. But I remember last election, last election, we went down the list and we were like, she's like, well, why don't we just see where Jesus would stand on some of these things? And I'm like, all right, let's do it. And so we go, she's like, where do you think Jesus would stand on abortion? And I'm like, okay. And she goes, where do you think Jesus would stand on immigration? And I'm like, she's like, how about capital punishment? And she's like, how about helping the poor? And she, I was like, she's like, where do you think Jesus would stand on gun control? And I remember thinking, I mean, that's probably why we started going that a little bit. But I, I remember thinking, okay, so this is not as cut and dry as I originally thought it was going to be. And don't get me wrong, I'm still conservative, but it was a great reminder to me that my political party is not my savior. Does that make sense? All right. There's something here for everybody. So if you haven't hit yours yet, it's coming, right? How about food? And we just got the rest of everybody. All right, do you think food can be an idol? I'm not proud of this, but I actually judge my vacations based on the quality of the food that I eat, all right? If you ask me about a vacation, there's probably a, I don't know, 100% chance that a meal will be brought up, right? 
Have you ever noticed that we actually have an entire classification of food called comfort food? If I think back to John 14, 15, 16, I feel like Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be our comforter. The Holy Spirit is who we would go to when times get tough. All right, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and he says, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach. That was a really hard read this week for me, right? <laughs> and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, so please, you don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you fast somewhat regularly? Think about it. Most people don't fast, not because they don't think it would be productive, that it would actually help their relationship with the Lord. The reason we don't fast is because we don't want to go without food. I mean, that, I'll just speak for myself. The reason I don't fast more is because I don't want to go without food. And the whole purpose of fasting is that you actually go without food, and when, you're, when your body says you're hungry, you pray. Lord, I'm going to go without today or for some set amount of time because I want to get closer to you. I want to hunger for you just like I hunger for food. So, so here, here's the thing. Am I saying you shouldn't enjoy your life? Absolutely not. Have a great career. Make tons of money so you can give it away. Get involved in politics. Watch tons of sports. Have a family. Love your kids. Enjoy what you eat, but recognize that these things are not your savior. They're not your comforter. They are gifts from God. So as we close, how do you uncover these idols? How do you find these idols so you can refocus your eyes on Jesus? Because there's probably Satan. I mean, think about the ways that Satan can infiltrate your life and speak lies to try to get you to exchange God on the throne to exchange something else on the throne. And I think one of the best ways personally is just to see where your treasure is. And actually Jesus says that, not me. Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then here's verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you treasure the most? And I would say, what do you make, not just sacrifices, what do you make spiritual sacrifices for? Because I think so often you, you get to a certain point in your life, and it's not really an age thing. It's just a certain point in your life, and you're like, you're beginning to realize, life did not turn out the way I thought it was. And if you're not there, you will be soon. Right? There's a point in everyone's life where you're just like, wow, this, is not, this was not in the plan. This is not, not how I thought things were going to turn out. And so, so often, we make spiritual sacrifices to get what we wanted. I, I, you know, I just didn't have as much money as I thought. So we're like, I'm out of this job. You go to a job where you've got to maybe cut some corners and do things. Or, oh, I thought my life was going to look like this. Or I thought this was going to happen. And Jesus says, you may not realize this, but I am what you've always wanted. You're going around doing all these other things, but I am what you've always wanted. That void in your life 
can only be filled with a relationship with me. In 605 BC, Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians and the prophet Daniel, remember, was taken back captive back over to Babylon. And during all of this time, the, the prophet Jeremiah was speaking. And through the Spirit of God, Jeremiah is explaining to the people, prophesying, where they went astray. Like, what, what happened? And here, here's, here's what he says. And I think it's such a great picture of kind of all of this that we've been discussing Jeremiah 2, he says, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. And then verse 13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn for themselves cisterns which can hold no water. I don't know if you've ever seen a spring. I'm sure you have. Like, we have quite a few springs around this area. But Courtney's parents live on a lake, and it's a spring-fed lake. So even on a calm day, if you look carefully, you can see kind of some ripples and some bubbles in the lake because that water, I mean, it just flows continually. You know, it never stops flowing. And God is looking at his people, and he's saying, my love and the peace that I offer you, it's like a spring that never stops. It's like a spring that's gushing out of the ground. It's continuous. It's never ending. But so often we say, wait a minute, God. I got a better idea. I think I'm going to go over here and make my own spring. Right? I'm going to go over here. I'm going to try to dig my own well. And God looks at, you and says, or looks at us and says, it's not even a well. You left the source of living water for that? Like it's like a hole you dug in the ground and you're trying to fill it with your own water to replace the water supply that I have. And not only is the cistern you're carrying, you're trying to carry the water with, not, it's, it's broken. It doesn't even hold water. Like that, that's the picture of what Jeremiah is telling the Israelites. And God says, why, why would you trade me for that? He actually says, be appalled, you heavens. It's almost like the picture of him looking at the angels and just saying, why? Like, be appalled, right? Maybe you're sitting here today or you're watching online and you're like I was 15 years ago, not walking with Jesus, and you're going around and you're digging all of these little holes, these little wells, trying to fill them with peace and fill them with joy and fill them with satisfaction. And if you're honest, you know it's not working. And that's why you're still digging. Because it's, it's not working. And Jesus looks at you just like he looked at me. And he says this in Matthew, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I know you're tired. I know you're exhausted. I will give you rest. I, I came down to you. I came down to my creation. I, I walked among them. I healed them. I loved them. I cared for them. And then I hung on a cross to pay the penalty of the sins of all of humanity. 
And Romans 10 says this, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And maybe you're here today and you've been walking with Jesus for a really long time. But if you're honest, your focus today isn't what it once was. Maybe, maybe there's things that have climbed onto the throne of your life, and you know it, because those are the things you run to now when you used to run to Jesus. And, and my, my encouragement to you, my challenge to you, is that you would recognize those things, and you just repent of it. Say, Lord, here's, he already knows it. Lord, here is where I have gone astray. I'm coming home. I'm coming to the only well that actually provides water, right? And I would encourage you to meditate on Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And then here's the part I love. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Please don't miss the fact that the verse verse does not say, try really hard not to screw up. It's not what it says. It doesn't say, wake up every morning to make a list of all the things you've been screwing up on and try not to do them. Because that's not going to work. It simply says, fix your eyes on Jesus because his spirit is the one that gets us back on track. It's, it's, we're, not, we're not going and doing all this on our own. His spirit is there to work with us and convict us and guide us and you know, walk with the spirit, Galatians 5. Right? One pastor says it like this. I thought it was really good. He says, sin is the result of a worship disorder. You worship your way into sin and you have to worship your way out. I'm going to close today with a prayer. It's a prayer the Apostle Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. It's in the letter that he writes them. It's Ephesians chapter 3. But I want you to picture that this prayer is being prayed for you. Like you always hear people say, oh, I'm praying for you. And you're kind of like, are they really? Or what are they actually saying? Like, Picture the Apostle Paul looking at you and saying, I'm going to pray for you. And you're actually hearing the words that he's praying And here's what he he says to this church at Ephesus. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
so much for Acts chapter 19. It's been extremely challenging. It's been extremely convicting. It's been encouraging as well. Lord, we thank you for this church at Ephesus. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. Just thank you for the fact that Luke wrote this so that today we can actually study it. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here who never started a relationship with you, they've been digging these wells and coming up empty, that today would be the day they place their faith in you. And Lord, I also pray that if there are people here today who maybe haven't been focused on you, that today would also be the day that that changes. Lord, that as a church, collectively, we would fix our eyes on you. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.